Welcome, everyone, to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. I mean, I thought I needed you, but you need me just as bad. The Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 103, Kandahar, is brought to you by Micro Retinal Scanners. When you're stark raven naked during an enhanced interrogation, all will look you in is your eye. Wow. Well done, Pete. Hello, one and all. So glad to be uh, back here doing the the seriousness of the Punisher. And it's such delightful contrast from a different kind of seriousness, a slightly more effervescent presentation over on our Runaways Rundown podcast, uh, which now has its own feed on iTunes or you're already getting it over the Pop Culture Podcast if you're listening there. So it, it really is an experience. Despite how busy things are, it really is an experience seeing um, this this Marvel Cinematic Universe, the TV end, which can feel fractured at times, but we're seeing these little different slices of life, and it, it really is quite a bit of fun. What two disparate experiences here in The Punisher with as significant an episode here in terms of the damage done to individuals and then the 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 lightness albeit the the heaviness of what goes on in that first episode of uh runaways by its end uh and this is why we play in the marvel cinematic universe yeah i think an episode that's as dark as this one that we're about to dig into it's almost better to have those divisions, to know in this episode we're not going to have Coulson turn the corner and be there with uh, a mission left from a video recording from old Agent Carter and along the, you know, and so on and so forth. The fact that this is so concentrated here and, then you know, Runaways, its own merits, we'll discuss that on that podcast. But the fact that this is an episode that's so kind of immediate to its circumstance, it really... Uh, it almost shows the wisdom of these these boundaries or this inability for them to really do hashtag it's all connected. Well, Pete, let's do a quick recap of this episode, 103, Kandahar. In the present day, Frank is uh, stressing and testing Micro uh, and the latter's allegiance to him. Micro's uh, hideout has a computer countdown, which requires uh, the computer genius to put in a code and complete a retinal scan at regular intervals. Both men share flashbacks. From Micro, we learn about his having received footage of the Afghanistan torture. Uh, he should have sent it up the chain of command, likely to be buried, but he shared it with investigator Dina Madani instead. For that, he was pursued by Wolf and shot in cold blood. Uh, but for his cell phone slowing the bullet, Micro would be dead. In Frank's flashbacks, we see his time in Kandahar with Billy Russo. They are in charge of two teams under Schoonover, recruited by the mysterious Agent Orange. Uh, we also see that Afghanistan torture scene from, uh, from a more immediate point of view, and it's revealed that Agent Orange is the one doing the torturing. Uh, after a history of a scorched earth black ops mission policy that this group is doing in, in Afghanistan, they have earned the nickname the American Taliban from the local population. Orange sends them on a mission to get a high value target into what seems to Frank to be a setup. 
The American soldiers are cut to shreds, but saved by Frank Castle on a killing spree. Back at the base, he smashes Agent Orange in the face, taking Orange's eye in the process. Flashbacks over, Micro uh, must put his computer code again. He stabs Frank with a needle, knocking Frank out. When Frank awakes, Micro encourages him to join Micro to pair up to punish those who wronged them both. In parallel, we see Madani assuming temporary command of her office, being told by her former partner Stein and her mother, not at the office, at her mother's home, but both tell her that she needs to trust others more. Similarly, we see Kurt's veterans group reflecting on dealing with life after the military, including Lewis, a young man whose dreams still haunt him. So Pete, where would you like to start in this episode? I think the overall presentation here, you mentioned Lewis there at the end. And what struck me is the the nature of our vets presented in this episode and how they come back to the world and how we need to continue to um, help them. Obviously, Lewis uh, is, is struggling. He's, he's not getting those needs met. Um, and here now he has access to a firearm and he's dreaming. Uh, it, it's clearly connected with the sense of betrayal he feels with what, on, what went on with the press officer, with the friendly, friendly fire incident. And he could have killed someone. In fact, I thought that's where they were going to take it. He missed his father, but he shot somebody outside and and they would discover that. Uh, That with the presentation of Frank and this murderous spree he goes on in Kandahar and all Agent Orange is worried about, did did you get my target? Did, Did you did you? get rid of the thing I needed on my shopping list? Did, did you punch the box? Um, and, and they are treated as pawns the same way that micro was. Um, and all three of them, even Curtis, we can add a fourth there, uh, with his, his legs and the, and the prosthetic there. One hasn't seemed to pay any kind of price, Matt, and at the episodes and he's, he's ready to bail and that's Billy Russo. And that's why I think we still have to regard him with, uh, you know, some kind of mistrust. And I really hope it's not the case, but, um, he doesn't seem to have suffered in any way like those other four that I mentioned. This is an episode that had me realizing that I hadn't thought about uh, a, a, a former family member uh, in a while, former uh, because it was a family member through marriage and uh, the, the, the marriage into the family ended. But uh, this was a guy who, uh, who was in the Marines, did two tours of duty in, uh, in Iraq and uh, didn't talk about it much when he finally got back and got out. But you know, you, I'd heard through the grapevine to other family members, you know, he was on convoys where they were hit by bombs or hit by mm-hmm. RPGs and guys he was with died in front of him. And, you know, he came back without a scratch on the outside. And particularly, I, I don't remember now exactly, but it was, it was probably within a year of his getting back, you know, the marriage, the marriage fell apart and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, and the kind of the, the family memory is, ah, you know, he whatever it didn't work out in retrospect you have to ask yourself how much how much was the wounds you could not see and and i won't explore the personal story much further than that in part because 
he's gone on to live a happy life. And I think everyone in retrospect can, can be happy for him that it didn't work out here, but, but he's, he's found the next phase of his life. It was with all of that that I'm watching this episode that I think with different eyes, you know, if you're just sitting there half watching while you fold socks or while you have a, have a drink or whatever it might be, it's either over the top kind of gratuitous violence or it's, you know, oh yeah, shoot him up, bang him up. But I think that it's a really, all four of these military members that you mentioned, Pete, are a reminder again of, of, of the, the unseen wounds that mm -hmm. people like you and I don't really understand that they come back with. It's an age old story really, but you know, the, the further we move into history, I think the way in which it goes down becomes more brutal. And you look at what these soldiers are exposed to. I mean, something that can rattle a guy like Frank Castle, you know, is, and again, it's, it's drama, but we see the stories about vets who come back from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from these most recent wars and the hellish conditions that they face, the pretty much disregard of any kind of rules of engagement. No wonder, and I think it's very wise of the writing room to bring up this idea of American Taliban, because one thing we like to think of in a patriotic sense is there are rules for our military, and that's what differentiates us seemingly from this enemy that, you know, doesn't have borders. I mean, ISIS has a flag, but, you know, it's not as if it's always flown when they're engaging in battle. It's, it's not the case. So the idea of fighting an enemy that does not have an army, does not have a country per se, and how difficult that can be I mean, less so a guerrilla engagement and more of, you know, can I can I trust these people that I'm seeing here to actually, you know, be sympathetic to our cause? And then the collateral that, OK, they don't like the, the, the citizenry does not like Al Qaeda or the Taliban or ISIS either. But do they view them as a lesser evil than us because the CIA or the NSA or whomever it is, is conducting a shadow war to take out high value targets, which we know there's heroin in here someplace as there has been poppies in Afghanistan since memory. So it's it's a really, really complicated and, and dark situation and nothing but sympathy for, you know, the real life sufferers of, uh, you know, tragedies and, and trauma from these most recent wars, all wars really. But, you know, I, I think it's a different ball of wax with the firepower, with all of the things that are deployed today. You know, my, you, you mentioned the story about a relative who had fought in those recent wars. Um, my, my maternal grandfather fought in world war two, but never any stories or anything like that. I, I know nothing about it. I'm sure there are stories within the family. My wife's paternal, uh, grandfather, um, fought in the Pacific and he never 
ever discussed it upon his return and he was highly decorated. Um, when he died, there were medals upon medals upon medals that were discovered hidden in his things. He never, ever talked about highly decorated. And you just imagine what he must've seen, you know, was this a, a, a jaws, you know, the boat is sunk situation and, and, uh, you know, the, the story of that one warship that was, uh, you know, ferrying the bomb where the sharks ate everybody or whatever, who knows. But yeah, I cannot imagine. I did not serve. Matt did not serve every respect for those who, who did. And, and just the sympathies for the horrible things they may have seen in the service of the United States. And with all of that, the lens through which we view this episode, how interesting, who are, who are the villains in this episode? We have Wolf, who unquestionably kills out, carries out that cold-blooded killing. I mean, there's not a... Unless I missaw the scene, Pete, Micro had no weapon brandished as, as Wolf Nothing. is. No, clearly is saying, weapon, weapon, drop it, drop it, then shoots him. He was covering himself, and, you know, we can talk about whether they could have followed up a little bit better to see whether he was dead or not. I mean, you, you plugged him, but there was no body. What, what happened there? Um, and then like micro said, they changed the narrative and then you bring up agent orange here. And it's nice to see, uh, father Phil Intentola from the Sopranos, uh, checking in in that role. Uh, but boy, we do not appreciate that character. And then, as you mentioned, still some question over over Billy Russo, who I think in this episode escapes clean. But we have this theme here of the guys that are the guys in charge, the guys that are giving the orders, the people that are benefiting from all of this um, and to a certain degree kind of getting away with it um, without blood on their hands. I mean, certainly the notion that Agent Orange is doing the the torturing and punching the, the, the Afghan police officer. That's, that's more work. That's more blood on his hands than I care to, to do. Thank you very much. But he's not the one who, who does the killing of that guy. He's not the one who goes into the battle that we see, we see Frank and Schoonover and company in later on. Um, so again, just this notion that who are the bad guys, the bad guys are the ones making these decisions. The notion, too, of bad guys on your side of a military conflict, I, I don't think is something that's explored enough. We know that there are soldiers who serve honorably. We know, unfortunately, you know, we've we've done the um, Abu Ghraib stories. They, they came out during the Iraq war and, and the abuse of prisoners of war and everything there. And, you know, not long goes by, uh, that older stories are unearthed and told what went on during those days. The, the lawlessness of, of people who should be enforcing the rule of law in countries where that's not happened or doesn't happen. Um, and unfortunately there are, there are people on, you know, world powers who don't always make the right decision and to see this very complicated and complex story. And again, the idea of personal profit, you know, that, uh, that Wolf had $30 million, uh, squirreled away. Okay. That's an outrageous sum of money for, uh, what would be a government employee that would set off 
all sorts of alarm bells. And clearly the guy was dirty as all get out and, um, you know, shot micro probably to, to cover that trail. And, and who knows who else who might have been involved. I'll just mention as an MCU tangent, part of part of this discussion of, you know, we are the ones, uh, I don't want to say causing the trouble, but but how there is guilt, guilt from those in charge. Part of what I think gets um, forgotten about Iron Man 3 in the fanboying over the presentation of the Mandarin is that in that movie, the real Mandarin is played by Guy Pierce and... Uh, Ben Kingsley is just the front. Like the real bad guy right. is the private, the private contractor, you know, Warbucks kind of guy. It that's never the, that's works the real out in that in that line of work. It never ever seems. And think of it's. And again, respect to people who would do it correctly. Okay, you're you're a outside security consultant and you're doing it correctly. There's no uh, offense to be taken. But, you know, we've heard and seen enough of these stories where it's a for profit situation and war and, and weapons are involved where it does not seem to work out. Back squarely to this episode, would you would you add Frank to the list of villains in that in, in either because of his his brutal show of force in Kandahar or his brutal foot show of force against Agent Orange? That's probably the easiest for us to all to all stomach. Well, uh, how about being the one that, that kills uh, Ahmad Zubair on on orders from Agent Orange and that he's relived that. But it's him killing his wife in that wake up scene we've seen a half dozen times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was another uh, that was another really effective presentation there as well. So. I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not genuinely proposing, oh, he's a villain in this episode, but again, we have this really nuanced take where, um, we see the Punisher doing punishing, but we never feel truly turned off by his behavior because he has conscience. We don't see pangs of conscience from those other characters. If you would have seen, if there was some flourish they gave to, um, Agent Orange, like, oh, this is a terrible death toll. But did did we get him? Instead of, did you get my guy? Did you take out the target? You know, Frank's vomiting blood, and and this guy wants to know, did did he push a button? Um, and it's just the hellish nature of war. But when private contractors and and all sorts of different agendas are involved, it gets that much murky. And I mean, also not knowing is Agent Orange private contractor. So is there a, is there a profit angle? Is he CIA? Is he something else? You know, is there kind of like the is there the intelligence angle, which is slightly separated from the military angle and all that? I mean, this is an episode that that bathes itself and bathes us in the quagmire of of not just war, but also the power that people accrue during wartime. You know, not only does Frank kill Ahmad Zubair on orders, he later removes the bullet. So the idea of forensics and that other guy who had, you know, joked around with him quoting scripture to try to, you know, needle him in the barracks. He's like, all right, so now we're we're altering evidence. And again, in, in a civilized 
justly fought engagement, that doesn't happen. And I think it's under this whole specter that the episode ends where this idea that that uh, Frank is ready to team up with Micro. And I would argue that we as an audience are ready. I think that the pacing through these three episodes, it's been slower. I feel like, oh, now I get it. One episode to kind of serve as a prologue. Um, one episode to kind of kick the story off of Micro introduced. Now we end this episode with you know this plan of they're both going to do justice off the books the bad people who who caused all this are going to die um and that's something that micro can live with something that frank by implication can live with as well uh in this arrangement where micro is the the guidance system for the the missile attack of frank it's a good metaphor it it is and i feel like we end this episode you know every one of these episodes needs to end i think with us still feeling okay with frank castle being out there we should never yeah. be. We should be fearful of his wrath, but not fearful of him. And it's a tightrope to walk, particularly if you want to get gory, gruesome. You know, I mean, frankly, after this episode, I'm not inclined to be like, oh, let's see more awesome killing action. You know, like this was right. this was a more hardcore, realistic presentation. But if we're going to get all of that in a package, um, we need to feel good about the title character. And in the, in the end of this episode, we do. That first episode, the pilot sells you on the on the revenge fantasy of the character apart from our connection to him from the previous series. The second one deepens the mystery. This one is why. Why is Frank the way that he is? And that's what we come to understand by the end of this episode. Pete, as we head into some theories here, I think that the the presentation of the pen that has the the, the needle, A and, you know, we watch all this stuff. Oftentimes we talk about Chekhov's gun. We talk about how they'll tip you off to something that's going to happen later on. They showed at least twice before Frank was stabbed. There were other computer mm-hmm. disarming scenes where we saw the pen. Only vaguely was it was it catching my mind. My eyes saw that he was typing with the pen. And it was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what he does for whatever. It's a curious affectation. Yeah, I mean, they definitely foreshadowed it there. I thought, all right, speed of... Like, I got to get this first code in there. Yeah. My question was, and and we're still left that way, was there ever even, or is there a bomb? I think, let me put it this way. The story could have one if they need it. I walked away from this episode saying there there is not a bomb. I believe him at what he says that it'll it'll share his death you know micro not knowing when death will come but if it's in this base this will show his death justly and fairly and hopefully add some context to the news media and to the to the world at large um i also really really enjoyed this notion that this whole this whole main portion of the present day frank story where frank is torturing micro is actually micro setting up conditions for frank to accept him like micro micro is being physically tortured this is all part of micro's plan i think i i think you're on to something with that but that micro has the upper hand on him uh later on i'm not so sure of that um you know the the idea of being okay with the guys who need to die 
will it be that simple? I, again, I'm, I'm not quite so sure. Given how micro came to be in this existence, though, I think it's at the very least questionable that the guy happened to get shot at just the right place and Wolf didn't bother to find the body and that wouldn't trigger any concern. Where did this body go? Oh, it just sank to the bottom of the river. Happens all the time with a freshly shot person. I mean, yeah, he'd be on somebody's radar. We have zero idea that he's been pursued. So everybody seems to buy that he's dead and would Wolf have believed, Oh wow, I really got him and we just couldn't find the body. If you're floating a theory of further story ponderance, I will disagree. I think it's just a weak point in the story period. I think as a, as a writing room, you get a couple of those per season where you go, Oh, well they didn't show it to us maybe because they didn't have an answer. And you know, the story is saying, and dot, 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 he got okay and got this garage and now is on erevenge.com. But um, it, takes a, it takes a couple minutes to think of, oh, this happened in an area where there's, you know, uh, really high convection under the water and we lose things all the time and never find them. Okay. You know, put some sense of doubt rather than he got shot, he fell over, it was in the water, and, you know, he wouldn't have sunk like a stone. I think, I mean, as a script, I will take I will take two sentences of dialogue to clear it up, even if it, like, even if it is impossible. And I'll frankly prefer a script that embraces the impossible. If, if uh, Micro comes out of that flashback and says, you know... Uh, with the way the water was uh, was was rushing that day, I was carried far away, and you know, it's in a million to one shot that they wouldn't have uh, searched to find me and given up so soon, but they did. Yeah, right, but, well, well, but if you something. acknowledge if you acknowledge it's in, it's near impossible and you beat the odds anyway, okay, I'm okay with that. A million yeah. to one things happen all the time. Go watch the nightly news tonight. Somebody's winning the lottery every day somewhere. Right. That's a million to one. The, so. It's not so much that the, the, the cell phone saved him. It's that the fall and they they didn't find him and no one's continuing to look for him. Yes, he's smart and he doesn't go back to his uh, home and try to speak with them in code or contact the wife or anything like that. He knows he's got to lay low. But never any idea like we didn't get a body you know have wolf talk to somebody like there's there, we still haven't confirmed this guy dead something there um let's talk about the the target matt in kandahar who is the high value target and um is he dead i think that given given the dark look to the past that is this episode I will much prefer if they leave the leave that character unnamed and if it doesn't come back. Occasionally with um, some of this Marvel Netflix stuff, it can seem like a very, very small world. And if our bad guy for the second half of this episode is so-and-so who, who you know narrowly escaped, if that's who the bad guy is, well, we, can do, we can do better than that in my view. If they're just simply setting up you know, chapter two, uh, okay. 
I mean, to me, it's not about getting that guy. What's the real emotional thrust of that scene? A couple of things come out of that scene. A, Agent Orange wants the job done, doesn't care about the, the human price at all. B, that's a scene where we see a pre-birth to the Punisher. Yes, it's the death of his uh, family that really has Frank Castle become the Punisher. The potential to become this, this killing machine or just this killing force to me, it's born on that battlefield there. Mm-hmm. And and that's the point of the story. The the inactivity or the lack of care from the person in charge, as well as the um, what it has done specifically to this one man. I don't need to know who the guy was. That's just a story excuse, in my opinion. And I loved that it was Frank, of all the characters who voiced the concern that they are labeled the American Taliban because of the way people disappear, because of the way the, the lawlessness of the region is impacting this group of elite soldiers from all these different uh, specialties was really, really effectively done. I think it's with that that I am greatly concerned that uh, the scenes with Billy trying to recruit Curtis at the, at the, um, the vet center, um, at the, you know, hall, wherever he rents it out to, uh, to meet with them that, uh, he might've in some way been behind the botched mission that he senses Frank might still be alive. You know, there's the, the one line during the episode where he, he asks Curtis, it's either like a a tense shift or something, you know, is versus was, I can't remember Mm. what it was exactly, but it sounds like he's, he's keeping close to him to figure out if, if Frank's still around. Yeah, there is that there is that moment at uh, I believe it's a Frank's grave where it's not just the slip of the tongue, but it's also uh, I mean, Ben Barnes is so wonderful. So he's he's wonderful because you don't know whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And just that that look that he gives. I think there's a directorial and an editorial argument to be made that he holds the look too long. But I think it's just. It's the character of Billy Russo who's used to management, who's used to also being fairly emotionally open. I mean, here they are, they're talking about the the way things were, and it, it's not, you know, a tear filled tear filled scene, but they can they can share with each other. They understand each other's language of of the pain that they have. Um so I feel like Ben Barnes plays it. He plays all those notes. He plays that notes of the boss just heard something that's your hand in the cookie jar it also just could be my man i i kurt i I feel like he's alive sometimes i think of those people that we don't have anyway it's like they're still with us it's all of that in that moment now i'm no dummy we're talking theories do we almost certainly have an intersection from his great friend frank castle his co co co-team captain or finally had separate squads or whatever but you know his his co-leader in Afghanistan, are we on the collision course where we're going to have Billy Russo and Frank Castle in the same room? Yeah, that's probably a strong theory to have. But um, in that moment, he offers us so much. He does. It's, you know, you talk about notes. It's a symphony as far as what he's presenting with the character and, and that we want to like him, but we don't feel that we can trust him. Last theory from me, Pete. 
I think that the two scenes with Lewis, the the young man who uh, who is at the veterans group, it would be okay with me if those two scenes are just self-contained and a self-contained reflection and additional perspective on what happens to these men and women after their 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 service. Insert O'Connor, who's uh, who offers him the pamphlet, um, pamphlet on guns and taking action and responding when you can't trust anyone. Surely we're headed to more with O'Connor and yeah. Lewis in some degree, right? Yeah, and I think to the the mental health component with squaring that with gun availability in our country. Again, and this is not to be political. This is clearly part of of the writers addressing this concern, having this discussion in the room. Okay, we're going to have a veterans group, and one's going to you know, be conspiratorial and, and push the second amendment stuff. And the other one is going to be damaged and broken and form this, this rapport with the other one who gives him the pamphlet. And now suddenly he's packing a gun, but he's not in his right mind. Clearly they're headed towards something. Not quite a theory here. Just, uh, just an observation on story trajectory. So I guess it's a theory. I don't know. It's not a full on theory. The fact that Madani is, as promised, she has assumed command, at least temporarily, for the office here. Uh, we don't get a ton of her in this episode, but this notion that she needs to trust people. Also, the direct connection that Micro sent her the video. Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll take that as it being a small world and things being connected. But I, I guess I'm not entirely clear how she's going to fit into the future of the story, but clearly she is. And the trajectory that Sam is on now as her de facto number two wants a partner and that he has to remind her about the idea of earning trust. And he points out, you know, and now I got to keep your secrets that you're investigating this $30 million money trail um, when it should be run up the ladder. But who else is dirty? Um we already know that Wolf has been killed. They don't know that was done by Frank. They're looking for um, Sam Steen's words, bad Santa. Well, Pete, we're not like Wolf. We don't have any $30 million in the bank there. We uh, are happy, that of you course. you know of, man. <laughs> well, I can tell you that our Patreon account is clean as a whistle, and we are so proud to be listener-supported, particularly this time of year where some of those financial uh, cows come home to roost or whatever cows do shouldn't it be roosters roost but i digress pete want to give a big thank you to everyone who supports us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek yes that anybody would even consider contributing let alone actually do it go to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash fantastic geek Everybody who contributes gets exclusive podcast content, and then there are all sorts of levels to pick for yourself if you are so inclined. And again, just super grateful, thankful, Matt, at this, the day before uh, American Thanksgiving, that people would do that and help us defray some of our costs for these 13 podcast feeds we bring you. Just two guys. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. It is it is something to stand back and go, wow, we're doing all of this. We're using the power of technology to, to make make the, these little engines go. So we are, of course, as you mentioned, Pete, ever thankful to those who, uh, who, who lend a hand there on Patreon. 
With that, Pete, how can people be in touch with you to share their best Thanksgiving recipes for our forthcoming <laughs> The Recipes podcast? No, I'm kidding. It's not. Yeah, no, we can't please. do that. We're full <laughs> up. But Pete, how can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 9,642 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast anytime you want. You can leave a comment on fantasticgeek.com, send an email to fantasticgeek@gmail.com. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the PH. Like it today. We've had all sorts of people jumping on the bandwagon there. Keep it up and uh, continue to fly that fantastic geek flag. Looking to the schedule ahead, uh, we have more Runaways on Friday. We'll be continuing with Punisher this weekend as well as we look to uh, to charge through both series, uh, both high-action, high-energy experiences. We want to bring the energy as well. Have to mention, of course, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. around the corner too. Star Wars around the corner. Uh, it's an exciting time, Pete. It really is. It is, and we're looking forward to bringing it all to you. Well, with that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. Sir, does that mean Anne margarets not coming? <laughs>